We are in the book of Job. I've been encouraging you to bring a hard copy of your Bible if you have one. If you don't have one with you, uh, you know, of course, feel free to use your uh, phone or whatever. We also have some pew Bibles uh, underneath the seats in front of you, the, the uh, red books there. Again, we're in the book of Job. We're going to be in chapters 4 and 5 today. When I was a young man, I remember going to a Harlem Globetrotters basketball game. And a uh, very entertaining time that I had as a young man. Uh, but I remember Metalark Lemon uh, was the clown prince of basketball back then. And Metalark Lemon, uh, at one point during the game, fell to the floor and began to moan uh incredibly loud and his teammates came rushing over to him and they they pulled him up off off the floor and they walk him over and and curly neal who was the the great dribbler on the team would come over and 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 he started working and they worked their way to the bench and metalark's moaning and moaning and and he's sitting there like this and and Curly Neal's grabbing his arm and he's saying, are you okay, man? You know, and somebody grabs some ice and put it on his neck and that type of thing. And he says, oh, oh, and, and they're doing all these things to him. And he goes, oh, it's my leg. And so all of his all of his teammates, all of his friends were trying to help him, thinking that it was his arm or his head or something that was wrong. And they totally missed the point, the diagnosis, if you will, that it was his leg that was hurting. Now, we come to a similar situation. Job's friends, uh, sometimes called his miserable comforters, have arrived on the scene, uh, in, and they have waited and watched seven days as Job suffers and scrapes his boils on an ash heap. And last week we looked at Job's lament, and they've heard this lament. And now, finally, one of them speaks. And Job, what we know, Job has just went through an incredible time of testing. And uh, the Lord, in chapter 1, has talked, uh, just to recap a little bit, in chapter 1, verse 2, uh, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And he says, from going up. And then uh, down in verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So he's blameless and upright. He's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing worthy of punishment or anything like that. But Satan thinks that Job is is that gold digger, that he's serving God for the blessings he gets. And so Job, Job, God allows Satan to take away Job's possessions and Job's health. And so uh, Job then uh, laments. Job doesn't know what's going on. He hasn't seen this scene behind the curtains, if you will, of what has transpired between Satan and the Lord. And so there is this unjust suffering that has occurred at the hand of Satan upon a righteous servant of the Lord. And Job doesn't know what's going on. And here is another key. Neither do Job's friends. But here's the things. Job's friends are an awful lot like you and I. They like to make sense out of a situation. And they've got opinions. Strong opinions. And as I remember sitting in a business meeting one time, 
a man said, I'm not always right, but I think I am. And so we begin a number of chapters where Job is going to be interrogated and accused by these three men as they try to figure out why is Job suffering so terribly. And Eliphaz comes from a land that is known for its wise men. He's a Temanite. We don't know a whole lot, but we do know that the Temanites were known for their wisdom. And so Eliphaz comes, and he is a representative of his countrymen, and he has wisdom. At least he thinks he does. And we're going to look at the source of his wisdom. Uh, is going to be his experience, uh, his experience in observing life, but then also an experience, a strange experience that he had with a spiritual being. Now, we're going to give you uh, a, the structure of Eliphaz's argument here. So, if we put that up there, here's the structure of chapters 4 and 5. We're going to cover chapters 4 and 5. And it's not going to read, the structure of his argument is not going to read in order. It's going to be in what we call a chiastic structure. It starts on the outside, works its way in, and then works its way out. Uh, it's not the size of the fight that's in the dog, that's, or excuse me, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the fight, the size of the fight in the dog, right? That's a modern day keyism. So we're going to have this structure here, and I'm, we're just going to leave this up here as we, we're going to read through Eliphaz's argument, and then we're going to see what Christ says about Eliphaz's argument. So Eliphaz, uh, and, and I've entitled this sermon, Bad Advice 101. Your circumstances reveal your standing with God. Your circumstances reveal your standing with God. In other words, if you're suffering, God's not happy with you. You've done something wrong. Gist of Eliphaz's argument. But Eliphaz begins in verses 1 through 6, and he basically is stating this, if you hope to avoid trouble, live righteously. And he's going to point to Job's life, how Job has lived righteously, and then he's going to conclude that Job is, uh, that's, that should be Job's con- confidence is in the life that he's lived. Now, Eliphaz begins in this first argument, with subtle jabs in uh, insinuating that Job has sinned. Later on in further arguments, he's just going to come right out and say, hey, Job, you've just, you've just done something wrong. Okay. But he, he starts out rather gentle with Job at first. So let's read verses 1 through 6. It says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you. Now that it is the troubles that have come upon Job. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and your integrity of your ways your hope? In other words, your hope to avoid trouble is the integrity of your ways, your fear of God. Now, what has God done, uh, Job done? What, is, what did God tell us about Job? He's righteous, right? And he, he, he fears God and stays away from evil. So Job has been doing these things, but that doesn't uh, stop Eliphaz. So Job has helped 
troubled people in the past. He's a man of good works. In verses 3 and 4. But now, Job seems to be impatient since God is now troubling him. Now, when we think of impatience, we think of five to ten minutes, right? I mean, Job's lost everything and he's been sitting on an ash heap scraping boils for seven days. So, terms of impatient have changed through the years, I think. But then he makes this statement in verse 6, and it basically is, is this, that God blesses the behaviors. If you behave yourself, God will bless you. It's not the fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope, your hope to avoid trouble. Here's the first note from Eliphaz implying that Job has some hidden sin. But Job does fear God and has integrity in his ways. God himself has said so, as we looked at in chapter 1. Then Eliphaz moves on to state that God troubles the troublemaker and blesses the behavior. And he appeals to his experience. Look at verses 7 through 11. He says, remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Now, it's not happened yet, but in the future, what's going to happen? Who, who is the innocent one who will perish? And who is the upright one who will be cut off? Jesus, the Messiah, right? So Job is a foreshadowing of this, but... Eliphaz is appealing to his experience here. Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Ephes says here that innocent people are not the ones who are troubled. Experience shows Eliphaz that God troubles the troublemaker. He says, as I have seen. And God easily overpowers troublemakers. He's using some rhetoric here by by appealing to lions. Lions are terrifying beasts, unless you go visit them in a zoo, right? And they're behind a cage. But if you were in the zoo and then the cage doors opened, it's a whole different feeling, right? So when we think of Eliphaz appealing to these lions, lions were things that, that roamed around, and there was a danger of them coming into the camp, and causing harm. But he says here, God shuts the mouths of those lions. He crushes their teeth. And so, if God can stop them, he can stop the troublemakers. God easily overpowers troublemakers. Just like he can the lions. And then, Eliphaz goes on to say that all created beings are troublemakers. And when I say created beings, I'm talking about humanity as well as divine beings, spiritual beings that God has created that we cannot see with our eyes. Again, Eliphaz appealing to experience. Here is his source of wisdom, this encounter that he has with a divine being in verses 12 through 16. He says, Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, dread 
came upon me in trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and then I heard a voice. Here's the message of the divine being. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? In other words, all created beings are troublemakers. And then Eliphaz goes on to say that, and he uses an argument from the greater to the lesser. He says, if God doesn't trust the divine beings, he's not going to trust men. Look at verses 18 through 21. Even in his servants, he puts no trust. And his angels, he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in the houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. There's a short lifespan for humanity. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. We're pretty insignificant in the long run. It's not their tent plucked up within them. Do they not die and that without wisdom? Eliphaz begins and says, if angels can be charged with troublemaking, which we do see that in Deuteronomy 32.8 and Psalm 82, God does charge the divine beings that he has created with wrongdoing. Then how much more are mere mortals going to be charged with troublemaking who have such a short lifespan and insignificance? Now we've reached the center of Eliphaz's argument. God doesn't trust any created being. It must be so because an angel told me so. Eliphaz's wisdom is based upon an encounter with a divine being. What we have here is bad advice mixed with an unreliable authority. And we'll, we'll look at that later. But Eliphaz says even in his servants he puts no trust. But God sure seems to trust Job. Behold, my servant, Job. Have you seen him, Satan? Now we've reached this center of Eliphaz's argument, and he'll start to unroll it back with implied accusations that get even stronger. Because he he stated at the beginning, God troubles the troublemakers. Well, then, in his eyes, the correlation to that is, is if you're troubled, then you're a troublemaker. And he starts out, I I find it humorous. That in chapter 5, verse 1, he kind of talks about his superiority to Job. He says, call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? In other words, hey, Job, I had an encounter with a divine being. Has that ever happened to you? Who are you going to appeal to, Job? What angel ever told you anything, Job? You see, it's hard to argue with someone when they rely on some authority besides the scriptures. And that's what Eliphaz is doing. His source of wisdom is this encounter that he's had with the divine being. Verse 2, he says, Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. He restates his thesis. God troubles the troublemaker and blesses the behaviors. Look at verses uh, 3 through 5. I have seen, again his experience, I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it 
even out of thorns, and the thirsty plant after his wealth. Eliphaz relying on experience. Again, it's hard to argue with someone when they rely on some authority besides the Scriptures. Now he's relying on his experience. Then he goes on in verses 6 and 7 for his conclusion of this portion. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Eliphaz is arguing here that trouble isn't an external thing. Trouble just doesn't come from anywhere, Job. It came from the fact that you're a troublemaker. It doesn't just appear from the dust of the ground. People bring trouble upon themselves. That's what Eliphaz is arguing. They are born to it, as he states. And so, now that he's made his subtle accusation to Job, that if you're experiencing troubles, you're a troublemaker, he then gives his recommendation in Job chapter 5, verses 8 through 18. And his recommendation is, is if you accept God's discipline and amend your ways, then God will bless you. Now, that's sound advice if you've sinned. But has Job sinned? No. He's like Metal Ark Lemon sitting there. His leg hurts, but everybody's working on his arm and his head. Job hasn't sinned. Eliphaz is missing the mark here. And he's going to say some incredibly profound things about God, some incredibly true things about God. He's going to give us some really great proverbial truths. They give us wisdom for living life. They just don't apply to Job's situation. So let's read verses 8 through 18. He says, As for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. And then we have something that's quoted in the book of Hebrews. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Great truths about God here. Proverbial truths about God. And it's important for us to remember that Proverbs are general truths about the way things work. I mean, if you are deceptive and deceitful, you will tend to get caught up in your own deceit. They're general truths, and they help us to live wisely. But Proverbs are general truths. They're not promises. But that is how Eliphaz treats them. He claims as a promise that if you accept God's discipline and amend your ways, then God will not just heal you. That's true. If you repent of your sin, God will forgive you. But he will also go on to bless you. Now we get more into sort of a prosperity type of thing. Look at Job chapter 5, verses 19 through 27, and how Eliphaz feels that if you're you're 
If you're doing good, God will bless you. God blesses the behaviors, as we've stated. Verse 19, he will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword, you shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At in famine, you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. Now, boy, the subtle digs really dig deep here. Because what has Job lost? Everything. All of his animals are gone. He gets even worse. 25. You shall know that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. What's happened to Job's children? They're dead. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. Thank you very much, Eliphaz. In other words, as he sums this up, he is referring back to verse 6. Hey, Job, you need to trust in your righteousness. Verse 6, he said, is not your fear of God your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope to avoid trouble? I see three major mistakes that Eliphaz makes that we need to avoid when giving advice to those who are suffering. So I've entitled this message, Advice 101, Your Circumstances Reveal Your Standing with God. Number one, bad advice mixes truth with unreliable authority. Bad advice mixes truth with unreliable authority. Eliphaz claims superior authority in verse in chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Why does he do this? Because he's had this encounter with a divine being who told him that all created beings are troublemakers. We encounter the same thing in our day when people speak to us of dreams and visions. I've had several times when different people have come in my office and they've told me about different dreams. One guy came in and he said, I've had three dreams about silver angels, two about uh, gold angels, and I think one about Mary or something like this. And he's referring to these things and he's talking to me about these things. And these are these experiences that he's had, these encounters, if you will, with divine beings and dreams and visions. But what was Jesus' teaching on unreliable authorities? Let's look to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. John 14, verses 16 and 17. Jesus is getting ready to depart, go to the cross, and he's speaking with his disciples. And he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be where? In you. What is this spirit that indwells us? When we are saved, the spirit that indwells us is the Holy Spirit. What does he do? Well, if you look to John 16, turn over to John 16, verses 13 through 15. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the, what? Truth. The source of wisdom that we have in this world, beloved, as Christians, 
is the Spirit, and the Spirit-inspired Scriptures. For he will not speak of his own, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit will guide us in truth, and that truth will help us to glorify Jesus. The Spirit is concerned with the glory of God. Turn over to Colossians 2, verses 18 and 19. What do we do with, with people who come to us and they are claiming their experience? We're suffering some wrong and they say, I've had a dream or I've had a vision. Listen, you need to trust me. Look at Colossians 2, verses 18 and 19. It says, let no one disqualify you. Let no one say to you, you're not a Christian or you don't have a right standing with God. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of what? Angels. Going into detail about what? Visions. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Do you think Eliphaz had a little bit of pride? Did you see that kind of in the, in the passage that we read? Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head, Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. See, Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit to guide us in truth. But bad advice mixes truth with unreliable authority. And your interpretation of experience is an unreliable authority. Christians must rely on the Spirit's guidance, which will never contradict the Spirit-inspired Scriptures. And so I say to you this point. Circumstances are an unreliable test of God's favor. Circumstances are an unreliable test of God's favor. So trust the God of your circumstances. If you're experiencing troubles in your life and you're not sinning and you're just questioning what what did I do to deserve this? Well, it may be that you don't deserve this. That you're in a situation like Job. And we as counselors to those who are going through troubles must be careful that we don't know the full situation. And so we don't need to be accusers. So bad advice mixes truth with an unreliable authority. Let's stick to the scriptures. Number two, bad advice relies upon man's fallible interpretation of experience. Eliphaz interpreted Job's suffering. Let me start over again on that. Eliphaz interpreted Job's suffering based upon the idea that God troubles the troublemaker and blesses the behaviors. Therefore, if you are troubled, then you are a troublemaker. Okay, so what we have here, something Brian Pate said to Pastor Tad and I as we were talking one time and I, uh, when he was in, and, and I texted him about it. Uh, he, he said this, just because two things correlate does not necessarily mean that one causes the other. Just because two things correlate does not necessarily mean that one causes the other. In other words, correlation, they're connected somehow, but that doesn't mean that one causes the other. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I borrowed my son's truck because we wanted to pick up some uh, some goodies for the uh for the missions conference on friday night we had the dinner right so i i I drive to sam's and so i'm i'm doing this uh, good work if you will for the church and when i pull out for some reason 
somebody at Sam's parking lot design put a concrete pole next to where I was parked, and I hit it. And I did not experience joy unspeakable, full of grace. Now, my response, though, was not to say, boy, I'll never do anything for the church again. Right? I mean, I was I was doing something for the church, picking up some things for the church, and then I had this self-inflicted accident. The two, the two correlate, they're related, but one didn't cause the other. Okay? And, and God does trouble troublemakers, but that does not mean that if you're experiencing trouble, you're a troublemaker. You follow? The proverbial truth that people who cause trouble usually experience troubles does not mean that those who are experiencing trouble are the troublemakers. Jesus had some teaching on those who experience troubles. Look at John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Now, does this sound familiar? The disciples are thinking like Eliphaz, right? Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We can't assume sin is behind every difficulty, trouble, and trial. Look at Luke, Luke chapter 13. We want to know why as human beings. Why did this happen? What was behind this? In Luke chapter 13, it says, there were some present with Jesus at that very time, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, it says they told Jesus this. Now, what's behind this is like, hey, Jesus, how bad did those people have to be in order for Pilate to cut them open and mix their blood with their own sacrifice? I mean, what did they do that was so bad? We ask these questions, right? Somebody gets sick. Some disease. What did they do to deserve that? Young 13-year-old man driving a pickup truck. Has a tire explode. Runs into a golf team. Killing a bunch of the girls. Just happened last week here in Texas. What did he do? What did they do to deserve that? Verse 2. Jesus answered them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or, and now Jesus brings something up to them. He says, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, the manner of your death says nothing about your standing with God. The manner of your death has nothing to do with your standing with God. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me say to you, the manner of your death doesn't reflect on your standing with God. But neither does the blessings that you're experiencing in this life or the troubles that you're experiencing in life. Let me say this to you. Unless you repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will not just perish death in a physical sense, you will experience death in a spiritual sense. 
in hell for eternity. Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, of whom I am chief, said Paul. I would include myself in that with Paul. I'm no more deserving of salvation than any of you are. It's grace. It's a gift. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I urge you today, repent of your sin. Acknowledge that to God. I'm a sinner. And Lord, I need to be saved through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Place your faith in what Christ did for you and your sins. Not on any good works that you've done, but on what He did for you. And God will save you. And He will save you to do good works. But you don't do good works to save yourself. That's not how it works. It's a gift of God. You just need to receive it. Repent of your sins and trust Christ as your Savior. Another place where Jesus taught on this, Luke chapter 6. Because we tend to look at rich people and think, boy, look at how God's blessed them. And we look at poor people and think, boy, what did they do? But Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 20, says he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Jesus says, you come to me as your Savior, no matter what you experience on this earth, I'm going to take care of you. Live for me. The proverbial truth that people who cause trouble usually experience troubles does not mean that those experiencing trouble are troublemakers. Circumstances are an unreliable test of God's favor. So trust the God of your circumstances. The third thing that I see that we can learn uh, learn from and learn not to do is that bad advice makes proverbs into promises. Bad advice makes proverbs into promises. Eliphaz posited that God blesses the behaviors in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And then he stated some great proverbial truths about God in 5, 8 through 18. But then he terribly applied them to Job's situation by making them promises in 19 through 27. Again, God blesses those who do good is a proverbial truth, but it's not a promise. Just because someone is experiencing a prosperous life does not mean that God's blessing is upon them. Bad advice makes Proverbs into promises. Now, Jesus teaching on those who experience blessings. Look at Luke chapter 6 again, verses 24 through 26. He's just said that blessed are the poor. Verse 24, he says, but woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak, people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If you conform your way of life to this world so that you have ease and good and you reject Jesus Christ and his ways, you may have it well now. But you won't for eternity. Luke 18, verses 18 through 27. There's a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And he's been blessed and he's done a lot of good. 
Verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, what he's saying is, I am good. I am more than just a man. I'm God. But he says, verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now, which one of those in the table of the law that refers to men did he leave out? Covetousness. Okay. Jesus leaves that one out. And the rich young ruler said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, those who heard it, those who are standing around, are stunned by what Jesus just said. Because in their thoughts, it's like, boy, the rich people are the one who have God's favor on their lives. Surely they're going to heaven. And when Jesus says this, they are stunned. And they said, then who can be saved? Wait, 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 who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And for sake of time, we'll skip the last one, but I will refer to it in Luke 16, verses 19 through 21. There's the rich man and Lazarus have this dichotomy. There's there's this rich man who's enjoying the pleasures of this life. And there's a beggar who the dogs lick his sores. And in a stunning turn of events, when the rich man dies, he finds himself in hell. And when uh, Lazarus dies, he is in Abraham's bosom. He is in the place of God's blessing and God's presence. Beloved, just because someone is experiencing a prosperous life does not mean that God's blessing is upon them. If you're experiencing blessings, it does not mean that you're in God's favor. Circumstances are an unreliable test of God's favor. So trust the God of your circumstances. The proverbial truth that God troubles the troublemaker and blesses the behavior is not a promise. If you're experiencing troubles, it does not mean that you're a troublemaker. If you're experiencing blessings, it does not mean that you're in God's favor. Circumstances are an unreliable test of God's favor. So I want to speak to the Christians who are encountering difficulties and troubles in your life right now. You may ask yourself, what have I done to deserve this? Whether it's bad health, financial ruin, the loss of loved ones, or even mistreatment by others. Yet to the best of your knowledge, you're living for God's glory. Remember, your circumstances are an unreliable guide to God's favor on your life. Through faith in Christ, you have peace with God, Romans 5.1. You are reconciled to God, Romans 5, verses 6-10. through 10. And you will never face His condemnation, Romans 8.1. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And in the end of Romans chapter 8, there's no separation from God. For the believer, don't condemn yourself. Don't believe those who 
tell you that you've brought this on yourself, especially if they're claiming some special revelation. Because of Jesus, the Father gave you the indwelling spirit to teach you. Be careful not to turn Proverbs into promises or proof of how God is operating in your life. We don't know what God is up to, but he is up to something good. Romans 8:28. God delights in exalting his servants who suffer unjustly for his name's sake. Circumstances are an unreliable test of God's favor, so place your trust in the God of your circumstances. Beloved, God is at work in your life. What he's up to, we don't know. But we know he's good, and we know we can trust him. We'll see that eventually in the book of Job. Now, for other Christians, your life might be pretty good right now. You may be tempted to believe that God is blessing you because of your righteousness. That somehow you're deserving of God's blessing. Or at least more deserving than your Christian, your other Christian brethren. You may be tempted to give Eliphaz's counsel to one of your brethren. To turn Proverbs into promises and predictions as to how God will act. Let me encourage you not to do that. Circumstances are an unreliable guide to God's favor. Be grateful for God's blessings on your life and be a true comforter to your brethren who are suffering. Don't assume that sin is the cause of a person's troubles. Do you hear me? Don't assume that sin is the cause of a person's troubles. We don't want... You need to know before you make any accusations. Right? That's why two or three witnesses is so important in the Bible. And that's why even with Christians in the church, and we talk about church discipline, it's important that two or three witnesses establish the truth of a matter. We have a lot of sinful distortions of God and a lot of false teaching in our world today. And we have a lot of people that are relying upon experience or visions and different things and dreams and all these other things, and not rely upon the Spirit-inspired Scriptures as guides for their lives. Jesus faced all types of false teaching and bad application of God's character and wisdom, and he died for those sinful distortions of God. But he encountered these false teachings, and you will too. You may have someone who comes into your life claiming an authority other than the Scriptures. They may mention a dream or a vision or even a visit from an angel. Don't listen to them. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us. And he will guide us into the truth and he will guide us to glorify Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, let's let's not take after Eliphaz's example. He had a lot of good things to say. He just missed the mark. Let's look to be comforters who help people in their suffering. And love and care for them and help them through the difficulties that this life presents.